Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to another instalment of your favourite politics and culture pod. Yes, it's The Bunker with me, Hannah Fern. And joining me today is the doctor turned campaigner and political activist, Dr Julia Grace Patterson, whose new book, Critical, sets out the extent of the crisis the NHS is in. But it also gives us some ideas about how to save it, which I think we all need to hear. Hi, Julia. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today. So your background, you're a psychiatrist by trade and um, you qualified as a doctor in 2010. You say in the introduction to your book, which I guess took me by surprise, that you didn't really consider yourself a political person Mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And that one of those things is you were very unaware of the extent of the use of the private sector inside the NHS. Mm -hmm. Is that true of most doctors when they're starting out, do you think? I grew up in Jersey and we don't have party politics there. So I think coming to the UK... I was pretty politically unaware of of what was going on. And then medical school is quite an intense environment, but also quite a cloistered environment. I just don't think I was really looking outside that. And I was also at medical school between uh, 2004 and 2010. And it was a really positive time in the health service. There were so many advances. The service was very well funded. And so I don't think I was probably asking questions about the political situation, the landscape beyond the service. So you started campaigning in 2015, so that was a little bit after Mm -hmm. you began practising. That was at the time of the junior doctor strikes about terms and conditions and Hunt, of course, Jeremy Hunt was health secretary then, now chancellor, of course. Would you say that period of time politically radicalised you, I suppose? Well, I don't think I'm a radical, but I think a lot of doctors at that time started to be aware that the political messaging coming from the government was sometimes loaded, sometimes skewed. We felt that there was bias being shown in the way they were discussing the actions of doctors and the opinions of healthcare staff. There was a politicisation of what we were doing and we found that extremely difficult because it was happening during the austerity years and we were working experiencing what the cuts were doing to the service and seeing what that was doing to our patients and seeing our colleagues leaving, moving abroad, becoming disillusioned with working in the healthcare system. It really felt like there was a disconnect between the way we were being spoken about and our realities working in the NHS. And I think that did turn a lot of us onto politics. Mm. We all became a lot more aware, I think. Of course. You set up Every Doctor, which is a doctor-led campaigning group fighting for a different kind of NHS, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Do you think doctors overall have become a more political force? There's definitely a group of doctors of my age group and younger who, yes, I think we are probably more political as a group than the older generation of doctors. You know, we sort of had a bit of pushback from some of the seniors who felt that we shouldn't be so outspoken. But it's been really interesting over time because... I've noticed that more and more doctors of all different ages are now becoming frustrated because it started with the junior doctors, but now the government has tried to scapegoat GPs, 
um, consultants have had their pay cut in real terms by 34.9%. Yes, absolutely. The pension situation has been terrible. So I think more and more doctors have, um, you know, just become aware of of what's going on. And and it's really tough because if you're working in the NHS, you're seeing the impact of politicians' decisions day in, day out. And when that's impacting your patients and their access to care and potentially their safety, it does cause people to become political and ask questions and um, it causes a lot of frustration. We gained a lot of doctor members during the pandemic when doctors were insufficiently protected by the government and a lot of doctors recognised the work that we were doing to lobby for protections for them in the form of PPE, death in service benefit, sickness benefit for people working as locums, that sort of thing. But what we're finding now, which is really interesting, is members of the public wanted to become involved and we're just about to build a community bringing all of those people together, doctors and people who aren't doctors, um, they recognise what's being lost now. And it's fantastic to have their experience and their knowledge actually as part of what we do, because if you've only got doctors who've worked in the service for five years or 10 years, you don't have that breadth of knowledge about what has been lost. You know, it was a very different system 20 or 30 Mm. years ago. Yeah. So you talked about the pandemic there and the effect that it's had on attitudes. Do you think that the crisis that the NHS is now in would have happened without the pandemic? Or did it just hasten mm-hmm. a crisis that was mm-hmm. coming down the track anyway? So there were problems in the NHS, obviously, before the pandemic. This government or you know other conservative governments since 2010 have squeezed the pay of staff significantly. And we did start losing staff members. The waiting lists were growing. So as we went into the pandemic, we already had more than 4 million patients in England waiting on a waiting list. But The pandemic has definitely sped up the demise of the NHS for sure. And coming out of the pandemic, I guess what we would have hoped is that the government would take steps to alleviate the situation. And unfortunately, they have been advised by many healthcare leaders, many professional bodies, many frontline staff, not just every doctor, that there are significant problems and patient safety issues and they have failed to take the action necessary. And what we've really found, and this is horrifying and it's quite difficult to talk about, we run a lot of parliamentary briefings as an organisation. So we bring frontline NHS staff in contact with MPs to explain what's going on where they're working. And traditionally, those briefings worked really well. And during the pandemic, we were seeing an attendance of 30, 40, 50 MPs to each weekly briefing we were doing. More recently, this is a generalisation, but as a broad thing, neither the Conservative Party nor the Labour Party right now are focusing on the crisis that's at hand right now. And you're absolutely right. They're thinking more about their long term political strategy. And that's incredibly problematic because this is a situation that's only going to get worse between now and the next general election. As you said, one of the earliest campaigns that every doctor um, did was about PPE and protection of uh, staff in the NHS during the worst and you know most difficult days of the pandemic when we really didn't understand the virus and what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously since then we've seen the extent of the PPE scandal, how the money was uh, mm-hmm. misallocated and it, and it's shown I suppose some of the direct ways that political decisions affect our own health and wealth, each mm-hmm. of us individually. How do you feel that that campaign has defined what every doctor has become or I suppose what you are campaigning on mm-hmm. as a as a campaigner? It was an extraordinarily stressful time for our our network because we were collating testimony from doctors about their lack of PPE and bringing that information to politicians on a weekly basis. We wrote a report actually about the experiences of frontline doctors at the time and some of it was absolutely harrowing. I 
I find it difficult actually to remember that time because there were moments when I would receive really desperate messages from staff members who either were caring for a colleague and friend of theirs in intensive care or who'd lost colleagues, friends, members of staff because the government didn't do enough to protect the staff and it was horrifying. The medical profession pulled together in a way which was just unbelievable. I, I mean, I don't think I'll ever encounter anything like that again, actually. As a community of people, the sacrifices that were made were extraordinary. One of our members, who's been a member for a long time, is a surgeon and his wife was heavily pregnant and he was needed in his hospital. And so he just moved out of his family home and moved into the hospital. And there were so many examples like that, you know. So we were receiving all of this information. We were then contacted by Good Law Project in May 2020 because they were starting to look into PPE procurement and asked if we'd like to get involved in a legal challenge against the government. And the moral injury that was sustained by doctors who recognised that this was going on while they were enduring so much trauma was a really terrible experience for people. And I don't think it's been properly recognised, actually. I think the, the papers have covered the sort of scandal of it and the money aspect of it. I don't think they've covered enough the, the moral injury and the trauma that has been sustained by people who had to go to work and didn't have what they needed. And we ran a campaign, like you said, called Protect NHS Workers at that time. We did some really big projects with artists projecting imagery on buildings and things. And it was strange because we, we got a lot of attention and a lot of positive attention during a time which was actually really traumatic for our collective of doctors. And it's it's caused really close bonds to form between the doctors who were a member of every doctor at that time and still very close with a lot of them. This aspect of sort of safety, speaking up for safety and people's well-being has formed a foundation of what we exist for because we get branded as activists. I think people like to think of activists as being troublemakers. But at the heart of what we do really as a community, we provide quite a lot of pastoral support for people. And a lot of the people who join Every Doctor do so because there's a lack of community, a lack of connection, a lack of basic kindness shown towards NHS staff. It's quite a brutal environment to work in now. And we try to provide that for people. So, sorry, that's a very long-winded way of saying, yes, I think safety forms the basis of what we exist for. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise... Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. I suppose one of the reasons that you might be branded an activist or, you know, a radical mm -hmm. in those terms is partly because of your criticism of the involvement in the private of the private sector in delivery of the NHS. So in your book, Critical, Why the NHS is Being Betrayed and How We Can Fight for It, you're very clear about those concerns. And I suppose it struck me that you speak of prov private providers as if they're totally new in the NHS, but then they're, they're not in a sense. The very creation of the NHS almost 75 years ago, involved partnering with the country's private doctors and bringing them into the fold. So what do you think makes the relationship with the private sector so much more dangerous in the way that you describe it now? 
Mm-hmm. So, well, first of all, I mean, the term activist is used as a way of saying that someone's on the fringes of a conversation, that maybe what they're saying is radical or different. And for some people, it's, you know, it's a marker that someone's perhaps not to be trusted, maybe a bit of a firebrand. Actually, the public polling on the NHS is that most people don't want privatisation to be involved. Most people want the NHS to focus on the core principles, which is to provide a comprehensive service, which is free at the point of use and equal in its access. And that's not happening at the moment. And so an examination is required as to why that's not happening. And I don't think there's anything radical in saying that. I think as a doctor, you know, doctors focus on logic and facts, and that's what we're doing. In terms of what you're saying about privatisation being involved at the beginning of the NHS, what actually went on is that, as you say, many private hospitals or hospitals that were owned by voluntary organisations or councils were brought under the umbrella of the NHS. And there certainly was some pushback from some private doctors at the time in terms of becoming a part of that service. But the GPs, who are sometimes referred to as private staff, They have contracts to provide care, which is for their local population. And what gets missed in that conversation is that GPs are responsible for the safety of the patients under their care. And so if you were a GP, let's say in a small village and you had three or four thousand patients under your care, you sign a contract to care for them and you do whatever is necessary as a GP partner to keep them safe. It's not like a business. It's not like that at all. And in fact, the current model whereby GP partners take on that responsibility creates a system where they have an autonomy to give patients what they need. And it also creates a real safety net for those patients in that area. GPs are very worried at the moment because there's thoughts that that system is going to be changed and there's been inadequate thought about what happens out of hours because GPs go above and beyond every single day to make sure their patients are cared for. In fact, one of the GPs on our team worked a 24-hour shift last year just to get through the stuff needed to keep her patients safe. Now, if you had a private company running that service, they would absolutely not go above and beyond in that way. And you also wouldn't get that from a salaried member of staff. She does it because she's a GP partner. So she has a responsibility for those patients under her care and she just has to do whatever she needs to do to keep them safe. Mm. So that's what I would say about that. And actually in the book, I don't talk about privatization as if it's new i talk about it as if it's been infiltrating the service for four decades because of various reforms that governments have brought in and it has been introduced in a stepwise way through the development of a marketplace within the nhs and then through pfi which has loaded billions of pounds worth of debt upon many nhs trusts and is built in health inequality and also now the outsourcing of services and the buying up of gp surgeries by US healthcare companies. So it is And you're right, lots of people don't realise that is happening. But what mm-hmm. about those doctors who do choose to supplement their income with private practice? How I mean as a campaigning organization, but also even you personally, how do you feel about that? Is that is that a defensible decision given the state of the NHS? I mean, my feeling about this is that NHS workers are workers like any other worker, right? You can't condemn people for making decisions for themselves that are going to keep themselves well and whole and actually I run a network of doctors and I hear from lots of doctors who've been pushed out of their NHS jobs which they used to love but which have become so stressful and demanding that they impinge on people's personal lives to the point that people's relationships break down sometimes they experience really 
dream trauma, some people have suicidal ideation because of their inability to cope with the sheer demand. And some of those people are reluctantly taking the decision to place their own and their family's needs above that of the service. And I find it quite difficult when people point fingers at NHS staff members and treat it as if they should stay in the service, you know, no matter what, no matter the pressure, no matter the underfunding, no matter the pay cuts. That's not how we should be approaching this. It's a group of people who are extremely experienced and they should be supported just like any other group of workers is. I'm interested to come back to austerity and its kind of long-term impact that, it, that we've witnessed on, on the NHS. Mm-hmm. How far do you think that the state of the health service specifically has been directly responsible for those austerity impacts that we're now seeing? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you think about the NHS as a project over time, something that's so amazing about the NHS and which I think is probably one of the reasons people value it so highly is that for 75 years, it's improved the lives of millions of people. And it's done that by improving life expectancy, by giving people a chance and by providing a safety net for everyone in their time of need. If you stop funding a service properly, if you cut things back and you make it more difficult for people to access healthcare that they need, that is one part of the conversation about, you know, what is going wrong with our public health and why are we less healthy? Why are we not living as long? There's a lot of unanswered questions at the moment about excess deaths, for example. We know that there's a lot of inequality. In fact, I heard a statistic the other day, Keir Starmer said it actually, about within his own constituency, a child born in Somerstown, which is next to Euston Station, is likely to live for 10 years less than a child who's born in Highgate Hill, which is obviously one of our you know, wealthiest parts of North London. And all of this conversation about is private healthcare better or is public healthcare better, we miss out on that wider conversation about the NHS as a safety net that's meant to be there to lift everybody up and help people in our society. And even going beyond any kind of healthcare benefits to any of this stuff, even if you purely looked at it from economical terms, think of the benefit to our society of having a healthier population. Well, we're seeing that obviously with long COVID and everything as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has impacts on the workforce, on people's productivity, um, on the cost to society of people being out of work. And also on a personal level, obviously, if you've got healthcare problems aren't being met you might develop a mental health problem you might lose your job you might lose your home you might break down your personal relationships it's got such wide-ranging consequences Mm. that it has to be a priority I think that conversation is the one we need to be happening so I guess I'm keen to hear your prescription as it were Mm. you wrote a very provocative piece which I thought was fascinating uh, about whether we should hold a referendum on Mm -hmm. the future of the NHS now Regular listeners know that we um, broadcast a lot around uh, Brexit uh, here at the bunker. And doesn't that weigh like absolute hell? <laughs> a referendum on the NHS strikes me as something terrifying. Um, well, I mean, it Because might... you have to respect the result. You absolutely do. But I mean, if you look at any of the polling that's been done over the last few decades, people are pretty clear about what they think about the NHS. I mean, it regularly comes top of polls in sort of what makes us most proud to be British? What do we value the most in our societies? And And of course, the Brexit referendum was partly won on the 350 million on the side of a bus for the NHS. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I think Brexit is an very interesting conversation if you think about this because political campaigning around these things can sometimes turn public opinion 
And also the service is in a terrible state right now. So that could influence people's decisions, right, if we did run a public referendum. But I think if you just approach this situation logically, the reason I think that a referendum might be necessary is that politicians approach the NHS in a very short-termist way. And over time, none of the politicians really want to put in the big, big sums of money you need to, for example, build new hospitals or schools or roads or any of that stuff because it's so expensive Mm. and it means they won't be able to do other things. And in the long term, that means that the service deteriorates. If you look at what the service is meant to do now as a project, a public healthcare project, it is meant to provide comprehensive healthcare, which is equal to everyone. It's always going to be challenging to achieve that. But at the moment, they are not achieving it. And so my feeling is that politicians have a choice now. So they either need to make a drastic change in order to fulfil those goals, which are on their own website as part of the NHS constitution, or they take it to the public and say, would you like us to abolish the NHS constitution? Now, I think we can all predict what the outcome of that would be because only five years ago... I feel very nervous about saying that, but yes, let's let's hope we we would know. I think it's less contentious than the EU conversation. I mean, you know, prior to the the EU referendum, that had been a conversation for several decades, hasn't it? That's very true. I think we're just all a bit scarred by, uh, by what we saw. So what other changes would you need to see for them to fulfil those promises? What yes. else are you looking for in terms of a, a shake-up? The most important thing, if you were just looking in the short term at what could be done, is the workforce. Because in England alone, we're missing 124,000 NHS staff already. You can't run a good healthcare system if you don't have enough staff. The government have been locked in battles against lots of public sector workers, obviously, for the last six months or so, striking. And they're reticent to give workers what they need and what they want. But if you compared the salaries of NHS staff to the salaries in different countries, if you worked as a consultant in Ireland, you earn three times the amount you do in the UK, you know, and they're poaching, well, not Maybe poaching is the wrong word for it. It's not their fault. They're advertising positions and UK consultants. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, we're losing staff for that reason. So if you think about an immediate situation like the one we had this winter where it was really scary and people were calling for ambulances that didn't turn up and A&Es were overrun and ambulance bays were full of ambulances with patients that we couldn't bring into the A&E departments. We just need more staff. We need to support the staff better. And so... We need to make it more attractive. Some of that involves pay, but it's not all pay. Some of it is things like providing proper mental health support, giving people time off. There's been loads of times in the last few years where everyone's been so busy that people haven't been able to take their annual leave and stuff. And those things are really important for people. So the government sometimes like tries to offer, you know, help with well-being as they refer to it, but it's not meaningful a lot of the time. They don't go far enough. So the, the workforce needs to be supported properly. Um, they need to pay off the PFI debt, which would be a very, very big sum of money. But the it's a huge rea- commitment to the future of the NHS. It is, yeah. But I mean, if we're thinking about I guess health- it's symbolic in that way. Yeah, and it was a mistake to ever take out any of those contracts. But we're with it. We've got them now, right? We've got these hospitals. But the reality of it is that if we wanted to reduce health inequality, it's one of the things we need to do because some NHS trusts are lumbered with these massive debt repayments and some aren't. I mean, that's going to have an impact on the patient services locally. So that's really important. 
I think we need to eliminate privatisation and return the service to a fully publicly run service that doesn't have any outsourcing. And, you know, some people don't agree with that. But actually, if you think about it, you've got these short term contracts running it, it means that the service is very fragmented. It's broken up into these tiny services across the country, changing hands every couple of years. If you've got a short term contract to provide a service, creates bureaucracy, it creates admin. Um, the NHS is a system and it's got all these different interlinking parts. And if you have lots and lots of outside providers running all of those parts, it's disrupting the architecture of the system, which used to be whole. So I think that's really important. Well, if uh, Labour and Conservative politicians don't have the time to come to your briefings in Westminster at the moment, then perhaps, hopefully, they'll be listening to this. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. And you can get Julia's book, Critical, Why the NHS is Being Betrayed and How We Can Fight for It, published by HarperCollins in hardback now. If you like what we do at The Bunker, then you can help keep us going by backing us on Patreon. Join our motley crew of supporters and you'll get the show without ads, plus a lot of extra benefits and even a free mug. I'm Hannah Fern. Thank you for listening. The Bunker was presented by Hannah Fern. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. The producer was Chris Jones. Art by James Parrott. And our music was by Kenny Dickinson. Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis, Group Editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.